Uh, Tom, I am exhausted from partying our faces off last night. Good lord, Liam. My whole body is sore. We were at the... Uh, my tongue is sore. How is that possible? Th- there was a lot of shaved ice that needed to be eaten, yeah. and you were the only one who could do it. Right. Listen, when Channing Tatum dares you to a shaved ice eating <laughs> contest... You can't you, say no. You don't back down. Uh, this is Media Majors, a podcast where two sellouts went to the Oscar parties last night. We hit up the Vanity Fair party. We hit up Elton John's party. We did not go to Madonna's party, and she knows exactly why. I don't like her. <laughs> I'm fine. True. I'm I fine. love 80s Madonna. <laughs> but it would have been so, it would have been weird if I had gone and you hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're a package deal, you and I. Ex- Just like exactly. two testicles in the same sack. <laughs> That's what this podcast is about it sure is what was your favorite memory from last night's oscar extravaganza from just like the after parties alone i think my favorite part was when jordan peele and jelsey peretti's uh beautiful angel (laughs) child Mm -hmm. gave me a line of cocaine that was insane uh this this baby was not uh like trying to give me cocaine somebody had given cocaine to the baby and the baby was was like like, i can't i can't you know i'm straight come on man i'm in the straight edge scene (laughs) Straight edged. My name is Chelsea Peretti's daughter, and I am abstinence till I die. Listen, I know that all the other babies like to post themselves vaping in all their IG photos, but that's, nah. that's not the life for me. I'm all about three things straight edge lifestyle, wicker furniture, and getting out. And getting out. <laughs> If Get Out, love to see the city. Uh, when Get Out swept every category, even Best Supporting Actress last night. Boy, was that a shock to the whole yeah. regime. All right, we, we're sarcastic, yeah. so we can start the yeah, show. Yeah, we did it. We did it. We did an opening bit. We didn't go to any Oscar parties. No. We went to the Golden Globes parties. We got the dates all mixed up. <laughs> this is Media Majors, a storytelling podcast about major media. I'm your co-host, Tom Lockney. I like to talk about the culture of video games and the internet. And I'm your bro host, <laughs> Liam Sr., and I like to talk about bro things like beer bongs, beer bongs, regular bongs, beer bongs, <laughs> beer bongs, beer bongs. Yes. Okay. That's the that's a video game. Is bonker is bonker a video game? Wasn't there a video game about a dude who used his head to bonk stuff? Yes, it's, it's super bonk. Super oh my bonk. God. Yeah, Liam, you just beer took bonk. Me back. Beer bonk is super bonk's uh, college years. Wow, Liam, quit. Quit stealing my half of the podcast. Speaking of which, I'll let you take your half of the podcast right now. That's true. Because you're going first this week. I am going first. Every week we center our stories around a theme. And this week the theme is Unforeseen Consequences. In the early 90s, thanks to the release of games like Doom and Quake, the first person shooter blows up. It becomes the genre of choice on PC. In fact, in 1994, 64 first-person shooters were released. Damn. Good lord, that's, that's so many first-person shooters. And it's 1994, yeah. when video games were not the industry that they are today. No. A lot of this is very iterative. Different developers are trying to make quality of life changes to shooters or kind of doing like aesthetic overhauls. Like I, uh, last week I talked about how Duke Nukem is it's, it's just like Doom with like a reskin, basically. Yeah. But there aren't very many strides made towards pushing the envelope of storytelling. Again, and also, like this is back in an era where we uh, val- overvalued the mechanical. I would say so. Yeah. People were just like, "Yeah, we don't really need a story. You can just like shoot stuff, and there's an aesthetic there." But then in 1998, Valve releases Half Life. 
The game puts players in the shoes of Gordon Freeman, a theoretical physicist working at the fated Black Mesa facility. Nerd. On another regular day, a catastrophic resonance cascade occurs, tearing open a portal that releases hostile aliens from the alternate dimension Zen. Of, uh, what? Hold on. Don't, yeah. It's called Zen, but they're hostile aliens? What is this, a paradox? I don't get that reference. It, well, Zen is like very calm and calming. Why would the oh. aliens be super hostile? See, it's not a reference. It's, it's an observation. X E N. So that's why we were on two different wavelengths there. Yeah, because I was I heard a real word, and you're using one of Valve's uh, alphabet fake soup ones. words. Also, we get it, Valve. You like things that are portally. Let's just <laughs> calm down. You ever heard of a door? <laughs> No. They don't. It's all portals at the Valve office. Not, it's all portals and tubes. <laughs> most of most of the money that Valve spends goes to Dramamine for all the employees. <laughs> this may sound like standard sci-fi fare, but it was the way that it was presented that mattered. It kind of sounds basic, especially because it's so taken for granted today, but they centered the player experience around watching things happen. Set pieces. That was the, the crux of Half-Life, was the set piece rather than encounter design. Of course, they sought to strike a balance, but most games prior to this, like I said, emphasized the mechanical. Whether it's as big and bombastic as launching a rocket or grim and dread-inducing as seeing a man get pulled to his death by an unseen creature in ventilation shafts, Half-Life put an unprecedented amount of effort into the set piece. It is immediately hailed as a paragon of the genre. Like, I, like I'm not kidding. Like, when, when this game came out, uh, I was reading old reviews, and people, even at the time, were like, this is big. This is one of the most important shooters to come out ever. I know I don't hold a lot of reverence for old games. I think a lot of them uh, were necessary stepping stones to get to better things but aren't actually good. Uh, this is not one of those times. I actually think that the original Half-Life is incredibly good. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not a, uh, my favorite game as <laughs> canon on this podcast is Mario Party 4. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I know about Half-Life. <laughs> I prefer Mario Party 7. You're uh, fucking ridiculous. A house divided. <laughs> a house divided cannot stand. His <laughs> houses don't stand, Abe, or whoever said that. Obviously, Valve wants to do a sequel, but they want to branch out. Half-Life was their first video game. How fucking wild is that, That's by the way? That's nuts. And these folks have a lot of ambition. In 99, they released Team Fortress Classic. In 2000, they released Counter-Strike. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Damn, yeah. Valve. Cranking out the hits. Both games <laughs> have gone on to wild like success. Like Barry cranking, Gordy. Cranking the Valve to success. My God. Uh, but Counter-Strike is a little more relevant to what I'm talking about today. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Counter-Strike is a team-based competitive first-person shooter. This means that a large portion of work on the game comes after the release in the form of balance, bug fixing, and general patches. It's hard to test how an FPS is going to behave uh, post-launch because pre-launch, the sample size is nowhere near what it'll be after release. This is, I mean, this is why we have stuff like open betas. And even that, like... You, you you will not have the same player base that you will pre-launch and post-launch. You just won't. Yeah. And so, if you tell me otherwise, I'll fucking lose my shit, okay? <laughs> so it so is, don't come at me with some false information, guys. <sighs> but this is 2000, and a platform for easy patches simply doesn't exist. Like, like today, you know, 
Infinity Ward can be like, oh, okay, like the M16 is doing too much damage, and so just everybody's using that gun, so we'll make a patch and decrease the like damage value on the bullets or whatever. But it's also, we're all, I mean, all video games consoles are have built-in Wi-Fi connectors. Like, it's, it's, it's as simple as just, like, sending out a... I, nowadays, like, there eh, aren't patches eh. pretty much just, you just download... It just seems like all you well, do is well, a lot of downloading from the internet. Yes, but that's done through services like Xbox Live and sure. PSN or something like that. Uh, you know, on PC at the time, the, the platform for easy patches does not exist. Yeah, like, that's what you, I'm like, saying. Literally what you'd have to do, and this is, okay, this is a little before uh, our time because uh, we're still young little babies. Ooh, give me, nope, give me the nope, game of milk, nope, daddy. Nope, nope. <laughs> I, I I saw that glint in your eye, and I'm not. We're not Ooh, doing. Oh, I'm a hungry little baby. I need patches. Oh, are you smoking cigarettes? <laughs> yes. Oh boy, I'm one of those non-straight edge babies. <laughs> Peel and Peretti's child and I would not get along. Or would they? Basically, what you would have to do was like go onto, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn because again, this is a little before my time. But basically, you would have to go to like a developer's website and just directly download a patch from there. You would, gotcha. you don't like know if there's going to be an update necessarily. Uh, you know, it, it was a very cumbersome process back in the day. By the way, congratulations on I think your first callback joke a couple of minutes ago. Damn, you did it. Valve finds that providing patches would result in the user base disconnecting for days at a time. They can't do that. Despite the fact that 75% of these people had access to high-speed internet. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, cause like, if people don't patch to the most recent version of the game voluntarily, like, they can't play online because their version is incompatible with the new. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like, and so the user base, like, will have to eventually learn, oh, there's a new patch. Oh, I need to go download it well, fuck, I'm not playing this game now. And if every second that they're not playing a game, they're not, like, engaging with the product and Valve is, like, hypothetically losing money down the line. Yeah. After being rejected by Microsoft, Yahoo, and Real Networks, Valve decides to design their own client in order to improve post-launch support for their games. This client will become Steam. Steam. Nice. And was released in 2003. For now, its primary use is to streamline the patch process for PC games. Then 2004 rolls around, and what's that? It's Half-Life 2. Finally, we get a sequel. I'm actually not a huge fan of Half-Life 2. Yeah, this is my weird, unpopular opinion, is I think Half-Life is really good, and Half-Life 2 is just kind of okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it has a lot of cool moments that fail to mask a lot of modern FPS storytelling problems, most prominently being the silent protagonist. Regardless, the game is critically acclaimed, and Valve rakes in the dough. I hate silent protagonist Man, games. Man, what if, what if... Can uh, we just have someone talk? Like, literally, like, I know that games are different than movies or whatever, so the approach is slightly different, but the idea that, like, if the character you're playing as talks and makes uh, and has feelings that are not 100% aligned with the players, that somehow people will, like, reject it as a... As a um, insert or as a uh, being that they a conceptual a conceptual being that they can empathize with that's ludicrous to me and so many modern games have proven that wrong it drove me I know you up a wall I know you hate Bioshock the uh, I hate Bioshock, Bioshock one it, and infinite Bioshock I was trying to think of a funny name for it because I couldn't remember infinite Bioshock here we are up in the clouds uh oh racism <laughs> uh, the uh oh racism edition. But, like, I don't agree with anyone's philosophy in that game, but I still, like, you know, 
didn't want them to die. Yeah. Uh, It's it's also, like, I feel like video games can get away with silent protagonists, but I haven't seen it done in a way where it's, like, cool. Yeah, like, I think in the original Half-Life it works a little better because your Gordon Freeman is kind of a fish out of water a little bit. Literally. Um, And people are constantly being like, you need to go fix this thing, or, like, literally the world's gonna end. But then in Half-Life 2, like... The, the the apocalypse event has already happened like the human race has been enslaved and so it doesn't make sense for all these people being like gordon freeman my good friend <laughs> and then gordon freeman just stares at them silently i mean like people have talked about this for ages i'm not saying anything new here the next year in 2005 valve begins to expand the utility of steam striking up deals with publishers to sell their games on the steam platform of course valve gets a cut This is the beginning of Steam looking like it does today, as a distribution platform for the PC, easily the most widely used of them all. Yeah. And then a curveball. In May of 2006, Valve announces the continuation of the Half-Life franchise in the form of episodic content, a trilogy, in fact. This kind of kicks off this weird boom fad, I don't know what you want to call it, of game design where people... I mean, I remember constantly on podcasts people talking, episodic gaming is the future of the industry. It's the future of content. Like what Telltale does? Yeah, like what Telltale does. And like there were several other... Uh, developers who started to kind of strike up the episodic format and then very quickly were like, actually, this is a bad way to release content and oftentimes tell a story in games. Yeah, and and it's also just like, I'm not playing video games. To, it's, to, in, I don't like. I don't want to play it in chunks. And it's, yeah, it's not. I, I should say it's not that it's a bad idea for games no, no. to do episodic content, but like with a lot of the storytelling mentalities that dominate the AAA space, it does not make sense to do that in an episodic format. Um, I just. I, I mean, I don't think that, uh, frankly, AAA storytelling is good enough to <laughs> uh, bear the weight of episodic format you know nah dude oh and i i mean just like the way like again kind of in the same way that for years and years and years triple a was like silent protagonists they can't talk they can't talk you can't i'm sorry you just can't do an episodic story format with a main character that never speaks it it, it literally is impossible i think yeah Half-Life 2 Episode 1 releases on June 1st, 2006, and players love it. Half-Life 2 Episode Episode 1, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's not... uh. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It should be noted that the face of Valve, Gabe Newell, has gone on the record saying that these episodes are Half-Life 3. Quote, probably a better name for it would have been Half-Life 3 Episode 1, but these three are what we're doing as our way of taking the next step forward. Half-Life 2 was the name we used. We're bad at this. I mean, I don't know. Doug hit the two key by accident. It's because Half-Life 2 Episode 1 takes place, like, immediately at the end of Half-Life 2. There is, like, there is no time distance. And, yeah, they probably should have just called it Half-Life 3 and called it a day. But, like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think that's actually... I think that could be the tagline of this podcast. (laughs) Alongside the release of these episodes, Steam is building... Steam... It's now starting to form into the distribution platform we all know and know today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all know and deleted off our computers No, today. I still have it. I, but I was just talking like, for me. I think that Steam has, I mean, like, 
I'm not going to get We've into it. We've talked about it many times. But I think that Steam has a lot of problematic structures that gatekeep a lot of development. And they're trying, like, to Valve's credit, I guess they are trying experimental formats to, to shake that up a little bit. None of them have really, like, addressed a lot of really core problems, though, so far. Anyways. Yeah. The Steam community launches in 07 because Valve is now changing, focusing more on cultivating this platform that they've stumbled into. Because, like, Steve is now their, Steam is now their moneymaker. Oh, God, it's their cash cow. It's their penny pig. Yeah. Uh, Half-Life 2 Episode 2 releases in October of 2007, and boy, is it a doozy. Featuring one of gaming's most intense cliffhangers, Gordon and his cohorts are captured in the game's final moments, and his mentor, Eli Vance, is killed in front of him. The screen fades to black. And then, infamously, that was it. <laughs> yeah, like that's it. Half they didn't two, make episode two? They never made episode three. That uh, was episode two. They uh, never made episode three. Um, and it has it has birthed this absurd meme amongst uh, uh, people who play video games and who are very vocal about it online of like, when are we getting Half-Life episode three? become when are we getting half-life three uh I, I mean i'm not like i'm not i really don't want to get into the conspiracy theories because they're they're like they're not even i think like the game theorists level of dumb idiot maybe that's a little rude but i i don't think that those theories are hold any weight and are really uninteresting and involve so much like neck craning and mental gymnastics that it's like yeah like if you just take like two seconds to look at what valve has done over the course of their existence as a developer and publisher and and uh platform holder it's very clear why they've stopped i mean Valve is infamously silent on the matter. There are several <laughs> measures of speculation. We've never heard of Half-Life. We don't know what you're talking about. I myself am engaging in some. Uh, Steam is huge now. Like like I said, they're they're trying a lot of different things, and that demands a lot of attention and time that they are that they're clearly prioritizing over other projects. One of which being Half-Life Three, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. They're still developing games. They make uh, Left 4 Dead, Left 4 Dead 2, Portal 2, Dota 2, etc. Like again, like a lot of huge smash hits. But also, even in those games, I think that there is evidence that the things that Valve is interested in doing in in the uh, field of game dev is not the same storytelling style that Half Life popularized and that Half Life 2. Uh, some would say cemented. I would not. Yeah. Um. But. They're more interested. I mean, Left 4 Dead 2 very famously has like the uh, the AI director program that is trying to cultivate more organic random events within sort of a structured campaign. Dota 2 is a MOBA. Portal 2 is is not really. I mean, yeah, it is a first person continuous storyline, but it's not. It's a puzzle trying, game. It's a puzzle game. It's trying to do different things than Half-Life is doing. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Like, it's not about combat. It's way more about, like. The level structure is different. You're inside yeah. a laboratory and, like, yeah, like, it takes place canonically in the Half-Life universe, but, like, that's, that's just that's service, fun. Yeah, that's just, that's just for fun, though. Also, uh, important to note, in 2012, the handbook for new Valve employees uh, is published publicly, and it is interesting, if not illuminating. 
At some point, Valve transitioned into. Uh, at some point, as Valve transitioned into self-publishing, they converted from like a a more traditional development uh, uh, structure into a flat management structure, meaning that like it's peer run. Nobody's like your manager or your head. Nobody's telling you you need to go work on this. It's your job now. It's sort of like just a bunch of really smart, creative, intelligent people go to work every day, Some of they, they work on their own projects and then we'll bring it to other people and say like, hey, like, do you wanna work on this with me? And that's how games will get made. And clearly like it does work. Dota 2, uh, uh, again, like a lot of the Steam stuff is is pioneered under, under this structure. Uh, the absurd amount of money Valve has through both of their games as well as their steam service allow them to do this like because they don't have they have no overhead they're making i don't even want to think about how much fucking money valve has got it's it's probably a lot <laughs> it's why certain projects are able to spin their wheels while others take off some have praised the structure while others have come down very hard against it asserting that gaining traction relies on internal social clout the the big uh pull quote that goes around is is like uh it was like high school that's from uh one particular valve expat whose name i'm forgetting i apologize through the rare public statement it's pretty clear that valve has uh lost interest is the wrong word but that not enough internal interest has has developed for them to actually make a half-life like i think a lot of it can be blamed on the or not blamed but a lot of the reason that we don't and probably will never get another Half-Life game can be attributed to this flat management structure. Um, also, in believe January of 2017, yes, January 11th, 2017, Andrew Reiner at Game Informer posted a series of unverified quotes from an internal source at Valve that uh, he, he had held on to for years, I believe, at the point of publishing. Uh, because because he had never been able to verify them, but this person, this internal source, was talking about why Half-Life 3 never happened. There's a lot of specifics in there, but like it's a lot of what I've been saying. You know, Valve's attention is elsewhere. This flat management structure mean, means that it's nobody's like job to make Half-Life 3. And frankly, I think a lot of them don't want to make it because I there's no way you could make Half-Life 3 and not just piss off everybody who's been like. Give us Half-Life 3 for over a decade now, you know? I think it's going to happen. Really? You think so? I think it's going to take a long time, but I think it'll eventually happen. Maybe. Who knows? That's the thing is, I think, like, I don't know, man. I think, like, 25 years, it'll happen in the next 25 years. Well, and and take this with a grain of salt, because a lot of these pull quotes, like, again, are unverified. That's why Reiner, uh, Andrew Reiner held off for so long on publishing them. But he, at a certain point, was like, I got, I got to just, like, do something with this. Um, so he put up a bunch of quotes, and it sounds like uh, internally they did not really know what they wanted to do with it. There was talk of it becoming like an RTS, which is weird. RTS? Uh, Real-time strategy game, so oh, like a oh, top-down yeah, isometric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, like, huh. like Battle for Middle-Earth or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, uh, the writer, uh, a ex-writer for Valve, a guy by the name of Mark Laidslaw. <laughs> dope name. Mark Laidlaw, excuse me. Still dope name. Uh, posted what was essentially going to be the plot for Half-Life 2, Episode 3. I don't really need to talk about it. I don't think, like, whatever it was, 
it's not going to be that if, if like you said maybe it does get released however many years down the line um it is i guess like if you're a diehard half-life fan like knock yourself out but i, I think it's gonna be one of these weird like attempts at nostalgia that no one really asked for Oh, I don't know about that. I think when Valve announces Half Life Three, everybody's gonna fucking lose. No, their no, shit no, no. For but it. but I feel like like it's just gonna it's just gonna happen. Like it's just gonna come out. It's gonna be like Duke Nukem Forever, exactly. But ideally less it, hateful. Exactly. No, but like I I was honestly thinking Duke Nukem Forever the entire time you were talking about Half Life. Yeah. I, I mean, I this think is it this a is very similar different from Duke Nukem Forever because it's not like oh, yeah. trapped in any sort of like development hell. It sounds more like it was in a pro- several different prototyping stages and then just like never got off the ground, um, as opposed to Duke Nukem, which just like festered like a wound <laughs> for years. But yeah, that's that's the story of uh, why we're n- probably never going to get Half-Life 3. People internal to the studio like in that leak have said, you're never getting Half-Life 3. Um, a lot of people have insisted that we'll probably get one because they keep leaving clues. But like, no, 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 no. They, they're not. And, and you know what? It was kind of unfortunate because I, I had kind of assumed this. But there's always that part of you, especially me being a younger person who grew up in a lot of the like oh half-life 3 confirmed fake announcement uh, era that like there was like a little part of me that was like maybe there is evidence that they could be working on it but like no it's like so obvious like if you take if you take like 10 minutes to do research it's like yeah they have no interest in doing this like that's what i'm saying if it will happen it's gonna happen in a grip from now yeah we're gonna take a quick break to hear about another show on the network so later, motherfuckers. Have you ever watched something for your favorite actor, but then afterwards you realized it wasn't worth your time? Well, our time is worth nothing. I'm Katie. And I'm Lenny. And together we host the Filmographers. Every month we pick an actor and watch everything they've done. Then we report back to you so you know everything to decide if it's worth your time. So check us out on the Major Cast Network or wherever you find your podcasts. New episodes the first week of every month. And we're back again. Um, kind of a trigger warning, just because I know a lot of people don't really like this person, but the story is uh, president, current president related. Oh, okay. President 28, the year of our Lord 2018 related. Yeah. All right, let's, let's dig in. This one is upsetting. The only response to a joke about you is to laugh harder than anyone else in the room. Uh, It's like an unwritten rule for politicians. Part one, hors d'oeuvres. The White House Correspondents Association is an organization of journalists who cover the White House and the Prezi of the United States. The WHCA was founded in 1914 by journalists in response to an unfounded rumor that a congressional committee would select which journalist could attend press conferences of President uh, Woodrow Wilson. And they were like, well, we can't all fight over that, so (laughs) we'll just band forces so that we can cover it together. The Waka. Yeah, from now on, let's just call it the The Waka. The Waka. That's much better. That way we don't get sued by the Henson Company. (laughs) The Waka operates independently of the White House. Among the more notable issues handled by the Waka are the credentialing process, access to the president and physical conditions in the White House press briefing rooms. Its most high-profile activity, however, is the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is traditionally attended by the president and covered by the news. Uh, 
where they eat, where the politicians eat the reporters, mm -hmm. and then we get a new batch every year. Yeah, so sad. The cycle continues. Will the circle be unbroken? Yeah, this is why John McCain's still alive. <laughs> He's eaten so He's many eaten journalists, so many young people's blood. <laughs> The Wakaz annual dinner. I'm so I keep trying not to laugh. The the Wakaz annual dinner uh, started in 1921, and it's become a DC tradition, uh, traditionally attended by both the president and the vice president. Fifteen presidents have attended at least one Wakaz dinner, beginning with Coolidge in 24. Uh, it's traditionally held on the last Sunday in April at the Washington Hilton. Until 1962, the dinner was open only to men because, you know, progression is a slow, slow process. Right. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. But, man, if there's one thing men like to do, it's fucking drag their feet. Rise up and bring your guillotines. Mm -hmm. Is it, like, they're just not mobile, though. That's the thing. No, no, no. I guess you could put wheels on them. And most, but then most you of the time do, you do. Then you do run the risk of just chopping off your own genitalia well, with one of those things. If you're wheeling a guillotine, you, like, put some a rubber foot. Did I say a, a guillotine? A guillotine? <laughs> a guillotine. Mm. Like yeah. When you're wheeling a guillotine, uh, you probably have, like, some foam on the blades because it's, in mo it's oh, moving. Yeah, 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 like a child safety thing. So that, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, guess so, like, what? You could drop learn. this guillotine on uh, Peretti and Peel's baby, and it would be fine. Well, yeah, they would be fine. Because it's straight edge. Yeah. It's straight edge hitting straight edge. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, that just sparks, lights a fire, <laughs> the guillotine burns down. Uh-oh, oh. that baby's not fire retardant. Oh, my God, it is, though. Oh, wait. Get out, too, fireproof right. baby. Oh, man, Jordan Collis. <laughs> At the urging of Helen Thomas, President John F. Kennedy refused to attend the dinner unless the ban on women was dropped. Prior to World War II, the annual dinner featured singing between courses, a homemade movie, and an hour-long post-dinner show with big-name performers, which sounds like hell on earth. <laughs> Since 1983, the speaker has usually been a comedian, with the dinner taking on the form of the roast of the president and his administrations. Well, that sounds fun. Part two, l'entrée. Barack Hussein Obama II, born August 4th, 1961, mm -hmm. is an American politician who served as the 44th president of the United States. He sure did. From 2009 to 2017. Uh, he was previously a junior United States Senator from in Illinois, and he served in the Illinois State Senate prior to that. Also, and this is really important to my story, mm -hmm. he was a black man. Yes, this is true. This it is, was a big, if, if it, I recall, it was it a pretty big deal. Quite a big to-do. Yes. Uh, in a good way for a lot of people, and in a not-so-good way for some other people. So he was the first black man elected President of the United States, and unfortunately... The United States has a lot of racist white people in it. Yes, and boy, did they not! They were. Uh, they yeah. They they belong to the second category yeah. of people I mentioned. One of the angriest and whitest people it angered is, ironically and terribly enough, the current president Donald J. Trump. <sighs> now, dear old Trumpy Pie has a history of hating black people. His father, Fred Trump, famously did not want black families to move into his building complexes. Woody Guthrie even wrote a fucking song about it. Yeah. Called Old Mr. Trump. I mean, like, just, like, read anything about uh, his uh, accusations against the Central Park Five, exonerated by DNA evidence that he continues to, or that he continued to say we're guilty. And Donnie kept that family tradition alive. He was incredibly tough on black families who applied to live in his housing complexes. He actually would only allow black people to live there when they attempted to sue Trump's racism. So it was basically just the worst possible situation. 
He is also quoted as saying the following, and again, this is the President of the United States, and this is a quote. This is really bad. Black guys counting my money. I hate it. I think the guy is lazy, and it's probably not his fault because laziness is a trait in blacks. That is a quote that the yeah, current yeah. president. I mean, like when he. I mean, he. There's, there's like a litany of just like racist shit that he continues to say and has said. Uh, like some things that come most readily to mind on the campaign trail were like my African American over there, or um, I, he referred to the uh, race of Mexican people as rapists. Yeah, for that one, that was how he announced his campaign. Good lord. He then added uh, he prefers that uh, if anyone's going to count their money, they better be short and wearing a yarmulke. So this one's just a real, real piece of shit. Yeah. So it's late 2010, early 2011, and Donald Trump is pissed that a black man is president. So what does he do? Part three, the plate deal resistance. <laughs> De la hashtag the resist la resistance. Birtherism, or as I like to call oh, it, shitheadedness, and as Jane likes to call it, I don't remember what I said. Racist propaganda. Oh yes, it is. Is the ideology that specifically Barack Obama is not from Hawaii, but from Kenya, which makes him eligible to hold office. Uh, the original smear against Obama that that was floated at him was that he was a crypto Muslim. That was around 2004 by perennial Illinois political candidate and serial litigant Andy Martin. Other relegated versions of this theory allege that Obama was educated in an Indonesian madrasa or steeped in Islamist ideology from a young age. Uh, all, 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 all proven to be not fabrications, true. like not even not even remotely approaching a truth. But it dawned on even the most stubborn anti-Obama lawyers that federal courts were not going to recognize their really, really, really dumb narratives of they're, lies and bullshit. Their nakedly racist bullshit, yeah. And now no single person uh, claims parentage from this theory, which was heavily advanced Man, by Donald Trump. That motherfucker's the fucking president now. He sure is. He's the, he's, the, he's the birther, and he's the fucking president right even now. Even Andy Martin, who is the earliest birther, uh, disavows the whole thing now. Fuck him. I, I'm Fuck absolutely him. convinced. No, like something, something. No, 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 it's no, too agree. late, homie. I'm absolutely convinced he was born in Hawaii, he told Politico. And I'm a big, dumb piece of shit. All through that year, the Obama campaign, with the affirmation of most leaders of both parties, aggressively battled the smear by emphasizing his Christian faith. And then his controversial Christian pastor emerged, and that whole uh, Obama's a Muslim thing kind of lost traction. Uh, then Trump gets a Twitter account. And around Obama's 2008 campaign, things heat up again. Even after numerous debunkings, there are cries of forgery and Photoshop immediate from the right. Even after he wins the presidency, there is still doubt. A 2010 poll found that more than a quarter of Americans have doubt about President Obama's birthplace. And in 2010, Donald Trump was a leading voice, if not the leading voice, of this incredibly stupid moronic movement. There's the, you know, I have to say, sometimes I don't understand why people live stream their podcast recordings, but in this moment, I think it would have really enriched the experience because, like, you're sitting like L from Death Note. Yeah, I can't, I can't, like, convey. God. I would just like to quickly note that Ted Cruz was born in Canada. Yeah, just. God. Isn't he? Isn't he the child of um, the guy who shot KFK? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I heard about his parents? What? They're the parents of the Zodiac killer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I heard about his parents? What? The same parents as Kevin on uh, on the Office. <laughs> Do you know what I heard about his parents? What? Uh, that their son is the biggest Simpsons fan in the world. <laughs>
there is an archive of every tweet that Trump has made regarding Barack Obama's lineage, and it is it is quite a bummer to read. Uh, nothing but hate and racism. Fox News has had him on multiple times declaring his uncertainty. There's another blog that lists every single time he's been on public television just Man. saying this shit. Remember, remember when he was running for the fucking presidency of the goddamn United States and that and motherfuckers like fucking political fucking pundits I'm so mad right now we're like you can't say he's a racist because you don't know yeah guys I, we I know. fucking know All Jesus right. Christ Ugh. so at first Obama just ignored it and then it was the last Sunday of April 2011 yeah the White House Correspondents Dinner was to be on Seth Meyers was the host and Donald Trump was in attendance why don't we watch a quick little supercut? Man, the fucking guts on that. The, the 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 arrogance of Donald Trump to show up to a place of a man who he had tried to, like, destroy through, le- like, weird legal claims. Oh, Jesus Christ. Fucking hate that guy so fucking much. And he's our fucking president. He sure is, bud. <sighs> but let's just take a quick trip back to 2011 <laughs> before any of this. And I'm gonna ask that we be quiet <sighs> for this, so we, the microphone can pick it up. And let's just watch some of the material from the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner. My fellow Americans, uh, let me just say up top that this evening I'm going to be making a lot of jokes. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Talking about um, Trump. For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. Gary Busey said recently that Donald Trump would make a great president. Of course, he said the same thing about an old rusty birdcage he found. (laughs) Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. Donald yeah. Trump owns and, the Miss USA won, pageant, right? which is great for Republicans because it will streamline their search for a vice president. <laughs> Mr. Trump may not be a good choice for president, but he would definitely make a great press secretary. How much fun would that be? Kim Jong-il is a loser. His latest rally was a flop. I feel bad for Ahmadinejad. He, he never man wears a windbreaker. He has no class. I, on the other hand, sell my own line of ties. You can find them at Macy's. In the flammable section. Yeah, it's so hard to laugh at this. As some of you heard, uh, the state of Hawaii released my official long-form birth certificate. Tonight, for the first time, I am releasing my official birth video. Let's take a look. Oh man, that one is pretty good. Yeah. But no one is happier. No one is prouder. 
to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? And then he became the president. And then he became the, and president, then he became the, the president. president. And that's why that is very hard to laugh at. <laughs> Part five, la vomiting from eating all the rich French foods. There are only two presidents that have missed the Oaxaca. The Oaxaca. The there are only two presidents that have missed the Oaxaca dinner since their inception. And they're arguably the worst modern presidents we've had. One was Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump who skipped the dinner that was going to be hosted by Daily Show correspondent Hassan, Mina Hassan Minhaj. He did not attend that to go to a Republican rally. In 2017, Seth Meyers was a guest on Jimmy Fallon's talk show. Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Fallon famously, like, petted Donald Trump's hair during the campaign. What a fun, cute guy, this dangerous Ex bigot is. Exactly. Who's, who's going to hold the most powerful office in maybe the world. And Seth Meyers calls him out on that. Yeah. And says it was irresponsible. And then they both say that Seth was more irresponsible for his jabs at the Waka dinner. Uh, I say that Jimmy Fallon, uh, but definitely did more damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because the difference, the difference there, at the very least, is that Trump is not being given a platform. Like, this is why I hate people who quote tweet Donald Trump to be like, you're a fucking idiot. It's because, like, literally you are you are disseminating his words. This, like, we, we know that you should not give these people a wider platform. And at that uh, dinner, I'm sure the reason that he was so pissed off about it was because he didn't have a mic. Because that, I mean, like, we saw him during the, the presidential run when other dudes uh, on, the, on the stage at, like, debates and such would try to dress him down. He'd just be, he'd just be himself, just like a, a, a dick-headed brute. And, and because he's the, the most pure version of that, he could just fucking talk circles around all these, like, politicians who, who I mean, like, just have no spine whatsoever. And are also are going to be in yeah. complete shock from the first thing that he said, that they missed the next four. Yeah. So Fallon, Fallon uh, petted, did not, the problem was partly that Fallon patted him on the head, but it was that he patted him on the head and then let him talk. Yeah. Whereas uh, Seth was just like, hey, hey, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, and lastly, go fuck yourself, Donald Trump. And that's the end of my story. Liam, for the love of God, let's go to the self-care <laughs> corner where we talk about something nice. Because I got fucking like legit fucking pissed off on this episode. Uh, it's so fun when I find a good one. <sighs> All right, so every week, sometimes we talk about bummer stuff because we think it's important to talk about, but we recognize that it is a little emotionally draining, so we like to balance that out with a nice thing that happened in our days or weeks or lives. We call that segment the self-care corner. Uh, I'm going to go first this week. I received a early, actually, birthday gift um, from one of our wonderful partners at the network, Eric McAdams, and I used it uh, to purchase Celeste on your Switch, Liam. And Celeste is uh, already one of my favorite 2D platformers I've ever played. I think it's got maybe the 
maybe the best opening to a 2D platformer I've ever played. It's like 30 seconds long, doesn't need to be any longer. It teaches you everything you need to know about the uh, character, tone, and uh, play of the game. It's it's incredible. It's it's a fucking masterpiece, and also the soundtrack is lit as fuck. It's real good. In uh, another video game related one, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are available <laughs> on Injustice Two, which means I've been ninjaing it up. You sure have, and it's been a great. That's the end of my self care corner. I have another podcast to tape. <laughs> have fun. I will. All right, you can follow us on Twitter at Media Majors Cast. Email us at Media Majors Podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you like the show. Uh there's nothing else. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. We'll be there for you. As always. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.